Welcome, listeners, to our third episode of our second season. I'm Rohit Segal, Chief Strategist here at the Voices Project, based out of Singapore and covering most of Asia. We're a group of like-minded health editors, researchers, and writers who spent a career in trying to track the evolution of healthcare in parts of the developing world, especially Asia-Pacific. So essentially, what you're hearing is a neutral, independent, uh, not-for-profit platform that aims to produce deeper insights and knowledge on public health issues uh, in Asia-Pacific. And what we try and do is to root that in local circumstances, experiences, and of course, the divergences that we live through every day here. And you've heard me say this before, but only by empowering voices and the issues that matter, we seek to accelerate many of the key healthcare priorities facing our region today. So for those listeners who are tuning in for the first time and uh, want to know a little bit more about what this season particularly is focusing on, the objective for this season is to try to lay the foundations for a regional understanding and framework of the role of technology in life sciences. And by doing so, what we aim to develop are region-specific consensus that can be you know, leveraged by policymakers, healthcare professionals, um, actors in the private sector to better facilitate the development and rollout of medtech policy in Asia. And it's by taking a continental rather than an isolated localized approach that we believe that this will also help serve a lot of UN agency goals, particularly SDG 17. For those listeners, uh, that's the sustainable development goal, uh, which focuses on the paramount importance of technology in driving universal health coverage and many of the non-communicable disease factors facing uh, Asia and the Pacific today. Uh, would certainly uh, uh, suggest a good read of that, which you can find on the WHO platform. And by developing broader collaboration amongst policymakers and agenda setters, uh, we hope to complement and build upon existing initiatives and just get us there faster. Well, with that preamble, uh, let me not waste any more time because we have such an exciting episode today. I'm joined by two evangelists of health, technology, and the human condition. I'm just so delighted to have the ever insightful uh, Rahul Malhotra, the global head of brand strategy and, and brand stewardship at Shell, and the irrepressible Dr. Kiran Priyadarshini, worldwide lead for health and life sciences, JPAC at Microsoft. Now, before I ask them to introduce themselves and give a little bit about their backgrounds, the reason I wanted Rahul and Karen to help guide us through this particular episode is because it's one that needs more light to be shown on. And it's really the question that, are we at that era of consumerized health digital literacy? We talked about this uh, health and digital literacy gap uh, in some of our earlier uh, episodes, the fact that it's now being paramount in driving future health preventions. So how can leading experts in consumer and B2B solutions provide a more interoperable North Star? So with that little bit of a, uh, a context and background, Rahul, tell us a bit about yourself. So good morning, I'm Rahul. I'm just a brand guy, <laughs> uh, but uh, I've worked with both Procter & Gamble as their Asia head of healthcare marketing a while ago. Uh, and now in energy. And one of my personal passions and why I'm talking to you guys today is I hope to inspire more and more company uh, organizations, private corporations to make a greater effort to partner 
towards the pursuit of SDGs, in this case, healthcare. And I genuinely believe that all of the skills, resources, and talent that private corporations can bring can provide mutual benefits to both uh, our societies as well as to their shareholders and reputation. So more to talk about that later. Thanks, Raul. And Kiran, for the listeners who have not uh, heard you on our previous episodes, um, would you like to give us a background to you as well? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Thanks, Rohit. So, uh, hi, everybody. I'm Karen Predarshan. Uh, I'm the regional business lead for JPAC uh, for healthcare and life sciences at Microsoft. Uh, and at Microsoft, my role is basically to work with our health industry partners, uh, and we strive to achieve the goal of, you know, better health globally. Uh, offering people uh, and the care providers, our patients and other care organizations a people first solutions so that you know all these uh, organizations and caregivers feel empowered through technology. Thanks for that. Now with that, um, many of our listeners and a lot of people that we've been sort of interacting with have asked us that how can principles of consumer or B2B engagement strategies provide the necessary innovative solutions uh, to particularly some of those pressing issues that face our health systems today? Uh, much, much has been said that uh, health policy and technology policies tend not to uh, work uh, in the best of uh, sync. Um, and what can we learn from that? Uh, what about the awareness factors? What about screening, adherence, compliance? Um, I'm going to ask uh, our guest today to try and apply some sort of a real world scenario, because a lot of this can sit in the ether and it can sound very much like it's uh, academic, but how has technology reshaped health consumerism, for example, digital literacy being as important as health literacy? Raul, why don't we start with you on that? one? I think technology is has evolved over the years in terms of the kinds of tools that are available. If you look to the very beginning, the advent of terrestrial television in the emerging market was technology in a way, right? Because that's what led to education around things like family planning or get your polio vaccine or, you know, stuff like that. And over the years, I mean, it has evolved now to social media, digital, and now cloud, AI and other things. But at the, at the heart of it, healthcare is about the human being. And all of these tools that are now available that can be leveraged for the sake of helping those human beings drive hopefully better preventative behavior. Uh, and if not, at least to get access to, to, you know, to, to solutions which are digitally enabled. Even a doctor who's available on video call or a midwife who's available on a text message in Nepal, you know? So, so that's my perspective on, on how technology can really, really help deliver better outcomes. Kiran, health consumerism, is that something that you're an advocate of? Is that something you're seeing developing? Oh, absolutely, absolutely, Rohit. And my answer is a big yes uh, when it comes to technology. So let me, if you don't mind, let me give you a slightly long-winded answer. So, you know, uh, patient demands, they, they were shaped really with the COVID-19 pandemic, and they actually pushed hospital systems into like a digital age. As you know, we've been talking, and healthcare has normally been a laggard, but in March 2020, uh, I would say the world almost changed overnight. And now, 
a consumer-centric model for healthcare is actually guiding the healthcare system to understand the patients, to be able to anticipate and meet customer needs while still offering transparency, something that was not there or was in, you know, uh, in limited fashion. Now, when you talk of health consumerism, what we have seen is that, you know, passive patients uh, have become empowered consumers, just like in any other industry, and their search for, you know, greater value, um, better cost, uh, better quality of service, a timely and convenient care, you know, being able to have transparency of information. At the same time, having a very positive patient experience has become very, very important, uh, both with their caregivers, with patients uh, themselves, with physicians, that partnership has become very, very important. And so what we see now is that consumers or customers, or you may call them patients, they want access. Um, so people appreciate the access and the convenience that digital health can actually give them anytime. And that's where I think technology plays a big role. And if you look at um, the changes that have come about in health consumerism, they're basically, I would say, four buckets, right? One is, of course, the communication with the physician. And, you know, earlier it was always like the doctor says and the patient does. But now I would say it's more like a partnership with all the information that's available. Uh, patients can also kind of discuss options. The other one is patient buy-in and compliance with treatment recommendations. Because when it's a partnership kind of a model, the patient and the caregiver is involved. So adherence to a medication, adherence to a care plan is much better because it's no longer like a top-down, but it's more like a collaborative approach, right? And then of course, you know, the whole thing around, I, I think I've been sharing earlier as well is around patient lifestyle, wellness awareness, and not only just cure, but preventive and healthy activities and behavioral change, all that comes in uh, with health consumerism aided by digital health, or uh, you can say technology. And I think for our listeners on the call, I would say that, you know, convenience has become the new currency uh, and for health systems and for providers, you know, um, to have a kind of a competitive edge uh, in, in the minds of consumers and patients uh, convenience is a primary requisite, and that's what you know technology can offer. It's it's interesting that you both sort of reflected on these on these on these on these parameters because you you think about how the consumption of digital is now also evolving, and I think as and as you said, it's moving from this passive to an active. Is that because while health literacy is still this sort of like how do I handle my health? What is this all about? What does this diagnosis mean? the somewhat more familiar aspect of digital knowledge or being able to connect through visualization mediums or multi-channels or multi-surface, is that helping to bridge this divide as well, do you think? I fully agree. I, I think uh, in the past, if you look, even the most educated people when told a complicated diagnosis by the doctor, didn't really comprehend what it was. They relied on somebody else in the family who may have got it. Today, you can not only Google the symptoms, you can see YouTube videos about what it is and how it's fixed, what the surgery might look like. Um, you can also join Facebook communities of people who faced this worldwide. So, for example, you can feel part of a community of you know, people healing together or dealing with this together, whether it's cancer or something else. So I think those are just some examples of how suddenly the patient experience and comfort with, uh, with a certain diagnosis or 
situation uh, has has been enabled by technology. I would argue even doctors. Well, <laughs> doctors feel just... more confident feeling part of a community if they are connected through digital, you know, you know, if they're trying new technologies and things like that. I was going to say that in terms of what Kiran said earlier, that what part of what technology is enabling is this age-old conundrum of the doctor-patient divide. And, you know, I think uh, that divide was getting really scary, uh, particularly when you're talking about less um, informed or educated communities that don't really understand uh, what condition this is and are looking for a cure rather than realizing it's chronic. Um, it has actually brought doctors and patients in some form closer adherence and compliance factors, simply because now there's a mechanism or a methodology. Karen, which is, is that I think what your point was in terms of you were describing the, the various pillars that are enabling uh, this more closer um, outcome? I would say because, you know, healthcare is so broad, um, Rohit, and then digital health is another layer that you're meshing on top. So yeah, those I would say are the four areas where you do see, you know, health consumerism. Uh, what I would say, what we call it also as retail health uh, in a way, and, you know, um, finance also coming in, banks are also coming in. So if you remember our discussion earlier, we're talking like of an ecosystem now, right? So because of health consumerism, you have a lot of retail technologies that are being used in your shops and shelves, you know, coming in into healthcare. And I think Rahul, given your PNG background, you know, that is something that you might want to comment on. And same thing with um, hospitals are now kind of, you know, they have pharmacies, right? Those pharmacies are turning into retail stores. Now that all is exciting because then what you're looking at is your consumer behavior, which, which product is being by, but by whom? I'll give an ex interesting example that I found very exciting in Korea. I wouldn't be able to give the name, but the way they are establishing malls, and you know, in Singapore, Rahul, ours is a mall country, right? Imagine in Korea, for example, we had this very interesting discussion where malls are going to be set up based on the profile of population living around it. So mm -hmm. if you have a lot of elderly care, if you have a lot of diabetic or chronic disease patients, then the mall is going to house products which you know kind of cater to that group. And I think that's what we do in retail, right? I mean, depending on which products fly off the shelves, you want to keep it in the front. So I find that very exciting. Mm -hmm. And also to add to what Rahul said, you know, in um, information is the, I would say the low hanging fruit. So as Rahul rightly said, Facebook, even just Googling onto, you know, information. I don't know about you, but many times what the doctors write in a report, it's all mumbo jumbo, you know, it's absolutely not clear. What does that word even mean? You know, and then you kind of go and search and try to understand. So that's where the patient involvement comes in. And as Rahul mentioned, for cancer, it's very important because, you know, cancer, uh, life is shortened and you're really scrambling for information. They could be rare forms of cancer. And this is where we've seen, because I work in life sciences as well, uh, we've seen patient support groups coming up in a big way. Pharmaceutical companies actually supporting these, you know, they cannot reach out to the patients directly, but this is a very nice way, a digital way of you're putting information out there so that your patients can actually get support. They can send in their queries uh, in a very anonymized, you don't know who that ID is. So that is one thing. And then you mentioned doctor connection. I think even doctors, now it's all a learning age. It's no longer like, you know, I've become a doctor and I'm done. No, no, no. 
technology is advancing so much that even doctors need to learn. And as uh, you were pointing out earlier, doctors can stay connected with, let's say, the experts. I know we do have these conferences, you know, which kind of bring everybody together and you learn, but now it's much more faster in the digital age, right? I can reach out to any other doctor, have a quick conversation, see what the other doctors are working on. And one of the technology I think I mentioned earlier, and Rahul, you should try this as well. Uh, you should come over to our offices, HoloLens, right? It's on mixed reality where, uh, you know, a doctor can be sitting anywhere on planet Earth. We've yet not tried. In fact, I had a very interesting conversation yesterday with one of the doctors at NUHS that they're talking to astronauts. Um, so health of astronauts, how do you kind of, you know, sitting here in uh, on planet Earth, how do you talk to them? So those are some very interesting technologies that are actually kind of, you know, making borders disappear. So yes, the answer is a big yes. Consumerism is just another piece to the puzzle that's pushing digital health to its very extreme. Absolutely. Now, let's go, let's go one step deeper into this and maybe try and take a leaf out of the consumer health strategy playbook. Now, we've talked a lot about doctors, and I think most listeners will assume or visualize, you know, folks in white coats, you know, sitting very formally there, making decisions on your behalf, and, you know, you, it's, it's a very sort of a, a one-way kind of a dialogue, but let's, let's talk about the reality of the situation. Uh, most of this region uh, relies a lot on rural medical practitioners, midwives. Uh, Indonesia is held up as one of the case studies in terms of the Ibu network, the, uh, the way that a loose confederation of uh, uh, women particularly came together and created one of the world's largest uh, support groups, right from you know, maternal, newborn, and lifelong. Now that's a large population. We're talking hundreds of millions. India, you know, most of Southeast Asia is being serviced by a loose affiliate of primary healthcare providers. Now, in the old days, uh, I think Rahul will remember this from his PNG, there used to be somewhat derogatory terms, you know, quacks, they don't know what they're doing, RMPs, what do they say, how are they even, you know, legitimized and all of that stuff. But sh things have evolved, uh, the ASHA networks that we hear coming out of India and the way that has come together. Now, talk us through, Rahul, I guess, the evolution, because you, I'm sure, have a lot of war stories to tell about how rural marketing from a consumer lens has in a way taught us that we can actually support, guide, mentor, and now with technology, almost be in the palm of their hands, ensuring the right information reaches the right people. But talk to us a bit about your times at a consumer health perspective and what's changed. Sure, I think the, the starting point is if, if anybody is still doubtful of the role of private corporations in lending their experience, expertise over centuries and, uh, and, and skills. I think the, the role of private corporations in my view is they have the money, they have the talent, they are trusted more than some of the local government in many cases. The expectations from investors, communities, staff is for them to make a difference. They have the tech. And here's an interesting one, their reach, which is relevant to what I'm about to dive deep into. The physical reach of some of these companies is very, very high. I mean, if you think about FMCGs in countries like Indonesia, India, China, the number of people that they touch through their direct and direct channels is in the millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions. Um, and each of those people in the sphere of influence can, can impact another 6,000 people. The digital reach, uh, Nike on Instagram 
had more followers than Donald Trump had on Twitter. So a single post from Nike, you know, talking about DNI, for example, would make uh, impressions equaling what Mr. Trump would have said on Twitter. So the power of corporations to make a difference is significant. So now let's dive deep into this. This one thing that companies have, which I think uh, healthcare providers, governments, and nonprofit can take from, which is the skills in what I call habit change or skills in, in reaching and influencing at the micro level. In developed markets in recent years, we've seen those skills uh, come up with the advent of things like cafes and that's a habit change. Going to Starbucks to buy something is a habit change. It's been cultivated and curated by expert marketers and Starbucks and elsewhere, right? Or the use of apps like Strava and getting people addicted to Apple Watch and, and, and all sorts of tracking apps. That's marketing. You know, it's not enabled only by technology. It's by supermarketers understanding consumer behavior. You know, how do you force that habit change to go and bike and switch on the Strava app? But now let's dive into developing markets. Now in developing markets, the kind of stuff that I've done in the past and what continues to be done is what is often called POME or point of market entry, right? Point of market entry has been done over the decades on so many things, you know, switching people from name toothbrushes to toothbrush, uh, a plastic toothbrush, which in retrospect is bad. You should go back to wood. <laughs> um, switching people from soap usage on the head to shampoo usage via the, the advent of sachets, which is also plastic, which also has to be done. So we need new solutions today. Um, cloth conversion. So I was the global brand manager for emerging markets and Pampers. And my entire focus was you know, traveling South America, Africa, and Asia on what are the habits of uh, moms who use cloth on their babies for a diaper and how do I convert them into that single overnight diaper and then over time expand that to maybe one in the daytime, maybe two in the daytime and, and so on and so forth. And so that cloth conversion was such a sophisticated skill that we had. We knew exactly which market was ready at what point to develop. How do you convert millions on mass? How do you use uh, maternal and nurse networks and so on to sort of influence that. How do you work with doctors and hospitals to give that sample when the baby is born with a lot of proper information on how to look after the baby and how that leaves a lasting psychological impact in the mom because she then never changes the brand because she's very scared that, you know, oh, the new brand, I don't know who they are, what, what it's all about. Um, my I personally used to lead... Um, you know, millions of contacts of, of uh, little girls in the 12 to 14 year old age group in schools, where you go and educate them on uh, the advent of puberty and give them samples of, of femcare products and teach them what it's all about because parents don't teach them in emerging markets these things. Um, so, so many examples and essentially it's about the reach uh, which also includes partnerships. So we, we partnered when I was in healthcare with, you know, these Anganwadi workers who would be going to the villages anyway. So how do you incentivize them to sort of get some extra revenue, but also distribute your products and teach people about the best way to manage their flu symptoms and so on with some products and so on. 
So there are various ways, but I think it, it's, it's been boiled down to a fine art in these companies over the decades, 50, 100 years that they've been doing it. And, and one of the things that I'm very impressed by was something my competitor did, which was Unilever in Africa with the partnership with the WHO. Uh, this was also 20 years ago, where they actually, and they continued it for 10 plus 20 years. I'm not sure if it's still continuing, but hand washing is linked to life boy from a commercial end. Hand washing is linked to diarrhea from a health end. Uh, the local governments, the WHO and Unilever partnered over many uh, millions of people in Africa to reach these villages. They had contests, education stuff around, you know, you know, the more number of wrappers we get from your village for life boy, that means that more people are using their, uh, washing their hands, which means that, you know, I'm selling more products, so you'll get an award such as I'll build a school in your village uh, and so on. Now, obviously that also meant that the diarrhea incident came down in those villages as more and more habit change happened. But that, that outreach, spending that money to go there, educate people together with the WHO and the local government, was an idea initiated by a commercial interest, but with a very strong SDG link back when SDGs didn't, weren't even talked about. So I think these are just some you know war stories that I can talk about on and on, but I think there is a huge amount of uh, learning as well as partnership and collaboration that can come if, if the sort of that intersection matches between what the health goal is and what the commercial goals are. Come on, Kiran, you're going to have a lot to say on what Rahul just said, so I'll, I'll let you say what you need to. Yeah, I would say that <clears throat> awesome stories, and, and I'm so glad you talked about the addiction to the uh, you know, eye wash as well. So the stories are amazing that you shared. While you were speaking, I was just jotting down as well. So, so I would say the story has two parts. The one part is where absolutely spot on. Uh, I think, especially I think I love companies like PNG and Unilever, the kind of research that they do and the stories that you shared about uh, at PNG, you know, we used to do it as case studies at business school, you know, so and, and, and I think the, the, the part I love the most being a researcher myself is the kind of market research you do, you know, the patient diaries, the, uh, you know, the patient interviews and surveys and you observe them. So awesome. I just love that part. So that's, one part so that's where i would say um, you know amazing work but how do you make that perpetual right how do you so you have let's say x company working very closely you build up a few villages but how do you make that perpetual so that when the company leaves it still goes on and how do you integrate them with the rest of the national fabric Right. So let me give you an example. So you, um, I think Rohit, you were speaking and Rahul of Angawadi workers and Asha workers. So one of the things that, uh, and I'll give you two examples around this, right? So we work with a partner called Reach 52. You know, Microsoft per se does not have products, but we work, we empower our partners and we give them the technology. So what Reach 52 has done is exactly what you said, Rahul, is like, go to the villages and the basic problem in villages is lack of doctors, lack of information. So one area which is very passionate for me is around child mortality, especially, you know, female uh, infanticide as well, where uh, you kind of, you know, you most women die during childbirth simply because of the midwives were not skilled. So this is where what Reach 52 does is that they go there and they train 
train the trainer. So what they do is they train the first level. And then these people, these are the ASHA workers, they then are skilled and then they go and train the next level. So the people who are actually there in every village. So it kind of becomes like a multi-level marketing. You have the top trained and then the next level and the next level. Now, one might wonder, what's the incentive? Why should I even be trained? So A, it empowers the ASHA workers. They know what they're talking about. So it's more like a personal growth. B, they see that they are making a difference. So in terms of number of you know, deaths of uh, babies, of uh, mothers is going down. At the same time, of course, there will be situations where you know, it's beyond them. And that's where at the village level, you can set up a simple telemed, you know, just an iPad where you can do a quick telemed with a doctor who's sitting in, a, in an urban hospital. And with the camera, you can actually see what's happening and guide the ASHA worker. So for the ASHA worker, it's like a level higher. They are like learning more as they go and they're empowering. That is one. And so what happens is this village becomes self-sustaining when it comes to healthcare because they learn, they're able to kind of, you know, share it. And of course, best practices are shared. So all these doctors, the telemed doctors, we conduct with the help of pharma, we conduct regular training sessions. We don't get in into at the village level, but we get in at the doctor level. So the doctor trains the ASHA worker, the ASHA workers train the next level. And this keeps happening. And the beautiful part is that you see they're slowly integrating into the ecosystem. And how is that? Now, these doctors who are being trained, this is where the commercial angle also comes in. They are sponsored, if I can say, or they are supported by pharmaceutical companies <clears throat> who want them to be aware, A, of diseases, B, of solutions that are being offered in the market. So everybody has a skin in the game there. The other thing is what Reach52 does beautifully is that they use technology to integrate all this information into a neat little app that the ASHA worker can use, use the camera to scan, a, let's say somebody has a wound or something, scan the picture, as well as a simple, uh, if I can call it an EMR system, not exactly a medical system, but a system to kind of, you know, have all your medical conditions, the medication that have been given. So that starts building into a village EMR. Now, the beautiful part is this, how do you get into the national fabric? Now, as you know, India is rolling out and I'll come to the Indonesia as well. India is rolling out and so is Indonesia, a national digital health platform. Now, because it's cloud-based, using a simple API, you can plug into the main backbone. So these villagers, these ASHA workers who were earlier probably keeping the records on paper are now into the grid. So which means that if this villager goes to the city to do his work and has a problem, he can just log on into the with using a unique ID, which is very important, and see what has been the you know case history. Now that's where I would say technology comes in, where all the good work that we are doing with public-private partnership helps to bridge that into an ecosystem. So boundaries, geographical boundaries become immaterial. And, I, and there's a third phase where the patient starts carrying that data. I mean, we're not there yet, but the patient would have all their data into a simple health app. And so they are able to show it to whichever provider they go to. So I think it's a, it's a beautiful way in which, you know, digital health can kind of make that permanent. And I think uh, Rahul, we've seen this with with the COVID vaccination, right? When you want to fly out of Singapore or into Singapore, you just need to flash yeah. your little app. So extend that, let's say, to a rural setting. So I think I love the fact that technology in a very simple way can actually bind that fabric 
And the other example I wanted to share was of Indonesia, right? This whole public-private thing. Even non-healthcare private players are coming in, right? So, you know, Indonesia has 7,000 islands. So literally during the COVID vaccination period, they had to put their vaccines in a, in a cold uh, temperature across in boats and take them all over the place. But the confusion was that people didn't know the vaccines were there, supply demand mismatch. So this is where, like in Indonesia, we're working. And it's, I think, even in Singapore with Singtel, in Malaysia with Telecom, uh, Malaysia with uh, their own telco. And in Indonesia with Telecom, they're saying, hey, how can we help technology reach last mile? Because, you know, we can provide you that connectivity that's so important. So you might have like a simple 3G, 4G phone. How can we kind of use that to get technology to reach the ends of the earth? And you know, in India, we have eSanjeevni 1.0. We are working for eSanjeevni 2.0, where you're saying people can have different types of phones, smartphone, basic dial phone, but how do we partner with telcos to be able to give? Because everybody now has, an, uh, has a phone. I mean, that's gonna be your point of uh, interaction in healthcare as well. So I love the fact, and that's what I think this whole ecosystem play that Rahul, you mentioned, where you have companies that are in healthcare, companies that are not in healthcare, coming together and contributing their little part in a very, how to say, win-win situation, but at the same time, betterment of health, because you know the, you might wonder is somebody losing out? The answer is no. You're just making that healthcare pie bigger. Earlier, it was probably only for the urban folks, urban hospitals, but now the big chunk in India, like 60% is rural still, so you're getting all those folks. So the pie is becoming bigger. Everybody's gonna get make more money and health is gonna be better. People are gonna live longer a very nice i would say situation <laughs> to get into yeah and, and not just technology getting better but technology getting cheaper because um, one of the things that i've been hearing a lot about is that uh, particularly from a lot of public hospitals uh, in the region uh, is this is this last mile karen as you reflected on and i think rahul you've talked about it in your experiences on how do you get village wise sort of uh, collaboration it's the physicality of being able to follow up um, you know, with the lack of any real available patient record. So in certain, like, and this is part of the dichotomy of this region, we can, you know, we have regions which are almost perfectly set up where by the tap of a phone or a tap of a device, we're suddenly connected into the grid. But many times, um, a lot of what hospitals, doctors, frontline workers have was at best a mobile number scribbled on a piece mm -hmm. of paper. Now, there's remote parts, as I think Karen, you rightly pointed out, 7,000 islands. I mean, you know, that's just Indonesia. You go to the rest of Southeast Asia, far-flung areas. We're trying to encourage more people to come for earlier diagnosis, earlier awareness, have a better understanding of how they can avoid that slippery slope. But then how does somebody who's just been diagnosed with diabetes or just had a mammogram screening report, for instance, how, the, the, the actual staying in touch uh, the EMRs factor, how, is, is there still a gap that we need to be filling? Or, or is this now, as you were saying earlier, it's now reaching a point of equitable balance? I can share, uh, you know, just as, a, as an observer and passionate person, I think the first and foremost, we need to catch the low-hanging fruit. I'm fully aware of the thousands of islands in the Philippines and in Indonesia and elsewhere. I think the point is, first, can we connect them through virtual you know, networks? So for example, in all of these villages, can you have 
people connect centrally to doctors on video, uh, at least for normal GP or specialist consults on pediatric issues or maternal health, or, you know, and, and so on. I think first and foremost, we need to enable that. Uh, secondly, we need to build those communities virtually. So in, suppose you have a village of 10 people, suppose there's an alcoholic in there. He has nobody to talk to. There's no AA there, right? Or if there's somebody who's a heavy tobacco user. Now, if there is a way to link this community of 50 villages and find 50 alcoholics who can talk to each other in their native language all within the same province of Indonesia or Thailand, that's a community that's helping drive preventive healthcare where they can talk with maybe a facilitator. So I think that's the short term uh, benefit that we should all strive for. And that's where a lot of investment should be made because that's gonna help immediately. Long term, the physical presence of doctors either going to these villages or these villages being enabled to come to central locations is going to be critical and it'll be critical for some need. And again, you know, I would say private sector uh, infrastructure goes to these places to deliver your Coca-Cola. <laughs> private sector initiatives are done to, you know, go and reach and sell their stuff there to, to shops. And even if they come once in three months, that's still a truck going into that village or a ferry or whatever, right? So why not partner with them and say, look, you have logistics. Can we share the logistics cost to either transport the doctor to the village or vice versa? And I think that's where the role of technology from companies like Karen and Gang will come in because that organization, that sophistication at the grassroots level has not been thought of. And I think it's just a, an absence of collaboration. Karen, collaboration, is that a... Is that a factor to put into one of the uh, the issues you mentioned earlier? Yeah, absolutely, Rohit. But um, so I would probably uh, be a, be in a different angle to what Rahul said. Is that I don't think we can physically send the doctor anymore because the doctors are very few. I think every market I speak with, the first thing that comes is a shortage of personnel, and I think COVID has really kind of drilled home the point that we are never going to keep make it because people are going to get older, sicker, and, you know, we're always going to have this shortage and rural makes it even worse because then you're taking away resources from urban and trying to push it into rural. Urban is high value, rural may be low value. Nobody's going to go unless it's a punishment to the rural areas or unless you're really learning on the job, right? So the way I look at it is slightly different and as um, agree totally with Rahul said, uh, but I feel that the low-hanging fruit are the doctors. Uh, and I think the way one should do it is, in all the rural areas, be able to get care or access to care through telemed. You know, you, can, you just need an iPad or a phone where you're able to kind of provide basic care first. I mean, forget your know, fever, somebody has a flu. I mean, those kind of basic care we need to start with, right? Because that itself is an economic expansion. You're going to get uh, revenue from that. And doctors would be incentivized to do that. And what we've seen with the East and Jeevni example as well, doctors do an eight-hour shift, but they do have, they can take a few 
uh, calls, you know, two, three hours. Even in Singapore, we see that once they finish, they are able to do with other about two to three hours. So it kind of brings in more revenue, more use of an already scarce resource, right? That's what I feel once. Second, when you do all this telemed, one thing that healthcare has always forgotten is to collect that data. Collect that data in a way that's reusable, interoperable, because I can see millions of patients, but after that, I have no clue. I only It's only the doctor getting skilled, but what do I do um, to be able to learn from those 1 million patients, right? So data has to be definitely collected in a format that is easily usable, uh, irrespective of whether you want to put it into a national grid or you want to do some analysis out of that. So that's very important, right? Because we all know if you want to fix something, you need to be able to measure it. That I think is point number two. Point number three, I think in rural areas, instead of targeting everybody, target the mothers. I've seen that uh, some of our partners who do it, do it really well. Because when you when you work with a mother, you work with a family. You know They have their kids that they're very focused on. And then they would obviously bring in the others as well around them. They're good word of mouth harbingers. So they, you know, once they have something good, they're going to go yak, 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 you know, all around. So I think that's where you start with mothers, mother's health, because that's one thing that's often neglected, women's health, then their children, which are the very important for them, vaccination, I think, I think build from there. Once you have the women, then you bring in the whole family, then the, the neighbors, everybody comes in. So build small, but build consistent, collect the data so you're able to do analytics. And I think to your question, Rohit, I firmly believe that there are two things. One, AI and ML models. You see, I could have like, for example, you said diabetic, they could have cancer. All these are preventable, right? Like cancer is preventable. So <clears throat> we do have, you know, villages going through screenings in the Philippines and so on. People do screenings. So if those images could just be sent through your normal internet or your whatever Wi-Fi you have at the rural areas to the city hospital, where somebody runs these images quickly through an AI model, result can come back within like seven to eight minutes. And all it does is not to replace the doctor, but to say, hey, these are the anomalies that we see, might want to do a deep dive. So A, you're preventing the problem from becoming really worse, right? You're able to capture cancer much earlier in let's say stage one. So you see Philippines breast cancer, Singapore breast cancer, lung cancer is on the rise. So let's catch it young or earlier, if I can say that. That I think is super important. Same thing with diabetes. If, if we were capturing all that data, you can easily see that, hey, this guy is a high risk for diabetes, so let's intervene earlier. And you know, the whole example I gave earlier where you're also equipping the doctor to talk to the patient, you know, this is the data that is being seen and based on a profiling, seems like you're high risk, high risk for diabetes, high risk for cardiac, high... so let's have some active intervention. And that's where I think this whole consumerism and smart wearables come in. I think an area where smart wearables, I push for them is because they give you data in a very continuous fashion. Like uh, you could have heart rate measurement, blood pressure measurement two to three times a day, right? And so that's where you're looking at behavioral data as well as being, does the, how many steps does this individual walk? Is he or she an active person? Is she a more sedentary person? So I think those kind of behavioral data now, as I see from a healthcare perspective, is as important as your medical records. So how can, and since we are collecting the data in a very smart way, we should be able to analyze that. It's just like how Rahul and PNG, you know, we get all these, do you like this? Do you like that? How would you behave that? And you go back and analyze that data and becomes amazing market intervention. I think we should do the same in healthcare. You know, how can I profile the human being as a product and say, what are some of the risk factors? What are some of the interventions and when should we do that? 
I think that's why if we start from the rural side as well, it's a push into the urban, right? It's like a, how to say, a symbiotic relationship, urban to rural, rural to urban, the linkage becomes stronger. So I think smart wearable is a cheap, effective way of getting that started. If I, if I may jump in, I think we have uh, a situation where tens of millions are being spent on video game development. Uh, no investment is being made in a easy way to, for example, uh, sit in a village and have something on your heart and have that heartbeat transmitted to a doctor far away for them to see your lungs. No investment is being made on an easy blood testing device, which is then distributed to every, every household like COVID. And then, you know, like an ART test, you test your blood, you put it in the app and through machine learning and all of that, it, it automatically sort of learns what are the issues with your blood. The healthcare practitioner has access to it. Uh, already, I believe some people have launched something to do an eye test using an app. Um, so what are the things that the physical doctor would normally do, right? They would use a stethoscope, they would do a blood test, they would listen to the voice, the rasping. I don't know, right? So stuff like that. Can, all of that can be technology enabled. And I think that's the innovation that's missing. Whether it's wearables or non-wearables, if we can make that innovation financially feasible for these amazing XP, you know, that, that same person who designed the Uber app or the Strava app can be used to design a user-centric app to test your blood or to test your um, diabetes or whatever, because they know how to navigate that digital uh, experience, right? And I think that incentive is missing and that incentive will come from that private-public partnership when that meeting of minds happens, you know, and common goals, common agenda, common modeling can be done. You, you, if you, I can just respond, Rohit, to that. So, so Rahul, you're spot on. So, <laughs> you know, if the, the camel doesn't come to the Arab, the Arab goes to the camel. So yeah. you're absolutely right. So when it comes to investment, uh, we, I think that what you suggested would be a very good route where uh, private players can actually pick up. These technologies already exist. Uh, I've worked with so many startups. It's just that there is nobody to give them that scale. And I think this is where what you suggested in terms of, you know, private players like PNG or Shell, they could, they always like adopt villages. And I think this is where they can work with startups and be able to, you know, give those devices on a trial basis. And the interesting good part is that technology is already leapfrog. We have, we even have whole body scan, right? So you can just get your whole body scan. It'll tell you where all the anomalies and tumors and all this are. Uh, but the uh, the other the the good thing about this is that, as you rightly talked about games, and so what came to my mind is because games is something that is addictive. You just cannot wean people away. This high amount of investment. So what we finally did, we found startups that actually are bringing games into healthcare. So we call it as yeah. gamification of healthcare, especially for rehab, right? And this becomes very interesting even at the village level where let's say somebody's had a surgery and now this person has to kind of recoup or recover. And you can use simple games where, you know, it could be activities that you do at home, like for women ironing, washing vessels. But again, through this gamification of these exercises, they are measured. So the doctor, instead of saying, oh, lift your hand, I want to see how much it can move, he or she, even before the patient comes in, can look at data. What mm -hmm. is the required, uh, let's say, uh, level? 
height that the hand needs to be moved to versus what has the patient done. So using that measurable data, the doctor already has a sense of, you know, do I need to extend rehab? Do I, is the patient fully recovered or not? So I think that is one good thing which has recently begun where gamification, you know, right from elderly who can still, you know, play games to the middle age, to the younger age, that is something that is also catching on. Yeah, you're, you're so right. And in fact, you've touched upon an upcoming season where we're going to talk about gamification and mental health and neurological degenerative diseases and how already there's so much in terms of uh, planning, diagnosis and screening that's coming into play there. Now, one of the things that uh, healthcare has always been said that we don't do enough of, and I think you've both been touching upon that right now, is that we don't adopt more patient segmentation when it comes to health assessment tools or health technology tools, HTAs. Now, that's a huge, huge drawback, and you would almost ask yourself, that's a massive opportunity missed. Now, psychometric behaviors, we've always said, can be equally, if not more compelling as clinical findings. And I think, Kiran and Rahul, you've both been talking about the non-clinical value as well as the clinical value in coming out with a better, almost a 360 view of that patient profile. Now, it'll be wonderful for our listeners, I guess, in a, in a summarized way, to have some takeaways on what would you think are some useful methodologies? How would we try and segment perhaps those who are averse to screening for financial reasons maybe versus religious, maybe just don't even understand the disease? Are there, are there areas in consumer marketing, perhaps, that are taking this already into place? And perhaps we can take a leaf out of that. Rahul, would you have any thoughts for that? Yeah, I think absolutely. If, if we start with why segmentation is useful, it allows you to focus your resources and your offer on the geography or the consumers and humans who are most likely to buy a product. And that segment is large enough to meet your market share goals. You can take the same principle and say, I'm in a village in Indonesia or I'm in, I'm in all of Indonesia and I'm trying to segment a group of people who are most likely to reduce their smoking behavior, right? Now you would start and segmentation would be demographic, age, gender, uh, and, and so on. But it would be also behavioral. So people who smoke more than X times a day or people who smoke a certain type of you know, unfiltered uh, tobacco or, you know, people who do X and Y. Uh, uh, and then there would be psychometrics, you know, people with a certain psychological profile or a propensity to listen to you. And that, and so the way it would be approached in a, in a private sector is first and foremost, you would go and speak either via focus groups or one-on-ones to at least 50, 100 people, right? You would go to these geographies, sit with the environment and understand then you would come out with hypotheses on what are these segments that are coming out from a psychometric point of view. You would find, and you would give them fancy names, you know, like health seekers and, and this and that, um, or sort of apathy, apathetic, <laughs> and so on. And you would give those names. And then the next point, next uh, thing a private sector player would do is quantify the size of each of these segments, where they would do a, a quant survey asking people how often do you do this or how, how much do you agree with this? And that survey of X thousand people, you would then get a size of each of these segments, right? Obviously there will be overlap, but at least there would be some distinct idea. Now, suppose you find that in Indonesia, there are these 50 million people you found who meet your criteria of the health seekers, you know, willing to stop smoking. 
then this quantitative study will also give you an idea of which parts of the country do they live in, what media do they consume, what are their favorite TV channels, TV shows, um, what, are, what are the other habits where we can reach them. So, so a private player would collect all this information in order to then uh, you know, target them using communication and other incentives to get them to change behavior. So in this case, instead of changing behavior to shift to a different toothpaste brand, it would be changing behavior to say, you know, have one less cigarette a day for one week and two less cigarettes a day for the second two weeks and you, you get an incentive after that, you know, or something like that. So there are a hundred ways to do this, but that's how segmentation could practically then be taken forward. Yeah, Kiran, I think you've been touching upon this uh, in, in, in your earlier uh, points, but uh, something around health assessment, predictability, as you mentioned AI and machine learning playing a role, is, is that something yeah. that features here as well? So, um, so absolutely agree with what Rahul said. And I think uh, we've got to learn a lot from marketing companies and uh, retail companies because they segment, uh, you know, consumers beautifully. And that's how probably, you know, they're so successful. But interestingly, what we have seen in healthcare, and I have partners like Cusin that I would like to mention who are like groundbreakers in this area where, you know, data scientists have seen that you can profile people the lazy way to do it is probably demographic, you know, oh, gender, age, blah, blah, blah. That is an old fashioned, I would say. The better way to do it is with, as what Rahul said, with FDOH data, which is social, demographic, economic, and health data, right? What that means is the ecosystem around the individual is not only your finance, so you have everything in, right? Like, and healthcare data is you have all types of data. You have financial, you have medical, you have social, demographic. Uh, we also key in if you're participating, like what Rahul said in surveys and things like that, you have all that data. But what we're looking at is only the medical data, which is why we're having an incomplete picture and people are getting into the sick bucket. What we need to do is using interoperability, use all, first thing, all types of data. So let me give you an example. If you're looking at, if a hospital is looking at estimating patient flow uh, week on week. The simpler way to do it is, okay, just look at the past year's data. In the month of June, how many patients did I see? Okay, estimate. No, 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 that is not gonna work anymore. What we have seen interesting AI models build on is patient flow data, seasonality. Is it a flu season? What are the weather patterns? Uh, looking at major events that are happening in that country and a lot of other factors so put all that together and be able to predict so your accuracy level really goes up because you're looking at all factors which influence the dependent variable right so similarly with health if you're able to look at the data around that ecosystem of the individual so my leisure activity financial my health my social community if you can get all that data together and then be able to segment it's super powerful now that's part one. Part two, once I have all the segmentation done, now what, right? There are end goals to be achieved, right? I want somebody who is pre-diabetic to remain pre-diabetic, not become fully diabetic. Somebody who is high risk for cardiac at the age of 35, I want them to reduce that risk and risks are measurable in healthcare. So this is where what we are saying is, how can I nudge them? How can I nudge that wellness part? One of course is a very old fashioned way of saying, Oh, Karen, you know, or XYZ patient, high risk of um, uh, cardiac, uh, this thing. 
high risk of uh, having a cardiac attack. And so, you know, you need to get these, these tests done. But the other way to do it is to look at my behavioral pattern. So let's take a simple thing like for diabetes, you need to have somebody exercising and eating healthy. How do you achieve that goal? One is to just hammer home the message by saying, hey, eat healthy, walk more, eat healthy, walk more. You know, it's going to fall on deaf ears. And the average life that somebody spends on an app is two and a half months. After that, you move on to another app. Now, if you were to look at data, and that's why I keep emphasizing on data, because they give lots of insights, which we don't look at, right? We do it in other industries, retail, finance, you know, we really like dig home, but healthcare, we're still very <laughs> nascent stage. So if you were to look and see behaviorally, what nudges Karen, or what mm. nudges Rohit, or what nudges Rahul, right? Rahul loves to travel. Ah, can I use that and nudge him on that? And Rohit loves to like eat food. He's a foodie. So can I kind of nudge him on the food part? So, and we have demonstrated this in, in major, uh, with major governments and shown evidence that if you're able to nudge somebody based on their behavioral type, their persona, it's more long lasting. Mm -hmm. So for example, for diabetes, you might have somebody who goes the food route. You know, he loves food. He's not going to exercise at all. So, okay, let's control that. Somebody loves to exercise, right? Okay, let, let's kind of push that person on that. So what motivates an individual's behavioral change? And that's where I think psychology also comes in. We need to understand that through data and be able to make very customized messages. Then the battle is won. Mm. Yeah. Well said. Very well said. Uh, I was just going to say, I need no nudging for food. So I think <laughs> that way I'm very well profiling uh, myself there. Uh, we're coming up on the hour and this is clearly uh, as I always say, the beginnings of at least digging deeper into these important discussions. Um, I think we've covered a huge and a wide variety of insights and understandings that we can take forward into other areas. And as I always say to our listeners, feel free to always write in or uh, message and ask for any particular uh, further deeper questions you'd like from our guests or from the Voices Project. Um, before we wind up, it's always important that um, I ask, uh, particularly for Rahul and for Karen, after hearing this dialogue and summarizing your thoughts this way, what's your takeaway for our listeners? What would be your viewpoint that you could say, that's sort of the horizon for where we need to be heading to? Uh, I always try and say, give it to me in a sentence, but it's all right if you take a little bit longer than that. Rahul, would you like to go first? I'll try in a sentence. Um, <laughs> if there are people listening in from the private sector, it is our generation that's going to make a difference to this planet and to its healthcare and other goals. Uh, if you're not stepping up to find the areas of collaboration, the partnership, you're not giving back to the planet and to its uh, communities what you were born here to do. Karen, what would be your takeaways? First? Yeah, I would repeat what I said earlier, probably in more than a line. <laughs> <laughs> I think convenience is the new currency. I think we really need to keep that in mind. And I love this fact that uh, Rohit, you put up this topic uh, of healthcare consumerism, because what it does is it makes the patients more informed uh, about the cost, the quality of care. So it's like literally going shopping for your healthcare and making decisions in a very proactive way. 
deciding where and when they want to get their health care. And I think even from the employer's point of view, as we're all employed, um, I think it also affects health benefits plans because earlier you would just be given a plan. But now I do find that, you know, patients and employees playing a very active role in what that plan should be. So this whole involvement and this change of, you know, the partnership is amazing. And I think it's a good change. Thank you both so much. With that, we come to the close of this particular episode. Stay tuned for episode four, that we're going to get into um, a further elaboration on how one wears one's own health. And we'll talk about what that means for the future. It's going to be quite exciting as well. Uh, again, I'd love to thank, uh, thank you so much, Rahul and Karen, for the time, taking that time out of your busy schedules. I think it means a lot uh, to our listeners who come from a wide variety of academic institution, governments, and folks who need to make some very important decisions. Thank you very much. And for anyone who wants to learn more about this, you can catch us on our RSS or Spotify feeds. Uh, you can always contact us through www.thevoicesprojectasia.org. I don't know why I always stumble over that one, but thanks all for listening and uh, look forward to taking this further. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.